0: Hello, I am Boyan First, and you are listening to Rural Roots, a Harris Center podcast that asks what is rural in the 21st century? In this episode, I have with me in the studio Felicity Kelleher from the Waterford Institute of Technology in Ireland. You have spoken at a Harris Center event yesterday and you talked about rural innovation and rural development and we never defined what innovation is and we talked a lot about innovation yesterday. So when you think at your institute about innovation, what is that you see as innovation?
1: Well, it was interesting because I asked that question of the audience to see what their perspective was. And if you remember, they asked, they answered with things like creativity, curiosity, a willingness to take risk, um, willingness to accept ambiguity. And if you think about it in context, well, innovation is that evolutionary idea that takes us from where we are today to visualize a new future that we can contribute to. So in context it is that evolution of what exists today in a way that can create, innovate in the manners in which those organizations in particular have capacity for. So it's often incremental in nature It may be something small, but its impact can be large. And it is that aspect of enhancing what you have already, but taking it in a direction that creates a newness, not just for you, but for the recipients of your service. Of our community network work. The last one is what about collective influence? How influential are rural communities in Newfoundland? What's your perspective? Are they as influential as their urban counterparts? And yet they're half the population. So it's quite similar in Ireland. It's about 42% of our population is urban dwelling. But our influence isn't 42%. And it's partly because the collective influence of the urban dwellers is higher than our collective influence. So the other thing that we're trying to achieve is connectivity between these communities. So their voice is strong as a collective when looking to policy or looking to your central department. So these are two of the big areas of collective influence, and I thought they might be useful to you. I'll provide One thing that I
0: was um, a, uh, really track. impressed when you were talking about, story, and I think that's mm-hmm. something that we could learn a lot here in Newfoundland and maybe even in Canada, is how connected rural communities in Ireland seem to be in terms of the existing networks. Can you tell me, you mentioned two networks that exist and that provide really strong support for rural communities. Can you tell me a little bit about those two?
1: Sure. So in, in the Irish context, uh, the country has just short of uh, 5 million people now. I mentioned that it's a, a growing population, that in 1970 there were just under 3 million, and we're anticipating by 2040 that that, that will have doubled. And in context, we look to the rural communities who often are ground up so they have already got strong ethos of collectivity of a connection with each other, an appreciation of where we're from, we're quite proud of where we're from, and a lot of it is solidified by things like sport, so we have two big national sports, Gaelic football and hurling, and they're by county, so even if you haven't lived in your home county for many decades, you're still very much from that location. In terms of the networks I spoke to you of, uh, those are just some examples, now some are taking time to develop in this way but the exemplary networks are those that have a strong ethos not just of champions but an appreciation of succession planning from very early on so these individuals who are strong community leaders have an inclination to help those around them not necessarily just in their own community but in their neighboring communities and that can enhance that kind of inter-community activity There are times when the government, uh, support agencies of the government and the higher education institutes will help facilitate that growth of interactivity. So one of the big uh, ones that I spoke to yesterday in relation to internetwork connections and collaboration was the Tourism Learning Network Initiative, sponsored by Fulcher Ireland and implemented by the Institutes of Technology around the country. And in our case, we engaged with over 800 individual small-farm owners of um, tourism operations. So the vast majority of non-agricultural businesses in rural contexts are tourism affiliate, And these individuals work together, both in-person and online, in a variety of workshops and fora and also in a variety of projects that they worked on individually and collectively that implemented the learnings that they were taking from the network initiative and putting them back into their organizational setting. For many this was the first time they had been affiliate to formal learning um, but what they really gained here was the peer interaction that has been maintained since between these individuals and we've studied them in terms of their evolution we've looked at evolving learning communities the lead on that was Dr. Leanna Reinold who's also in WIT and in context that work has suggested that it's more valuable to facilitate in a way that considers the leader needs within the community than to attempt to implement what we believe is right, whether that be an agent or a government representative or a, an academic, um, because then they own it. And I think that that particular project is proof of that. Another that we would nothing to do with, but is highly successful and we're delighted to see their success, but would very much uh, feel supportive of them is the dunhill enterprise center and in context that that was entirely ground up it's truly a social enterprise established by that community for that community and it's 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 a set of buildings with full um support structures including an environmental certification that offers artists and creative people and uh, business owners, small business owners in the community a hub through which to work from.
0: This is really interesting, and um, um, it was my, one of my questions, but it's a nice segue actually. The relationship between the institutions of higher learning, academic institutions, and regional development, so you sometimes actually have a mandate to engage in regional development, um, how is that relationship working? What are sort of tenets of the <laughs> of that relationship?
1: So yeah, we have a an ethos uh, as as opposed to a mandate, but we have an ethos to to contribute to the region. So we work quite closely with Waterford Chamber of Commerce, which um, and the the City and County Council, which is one council now they've merged, and in context we're working with those in liaison with the rural and regional communities to ensure that we're affiliated in a way that isn't imposing, but is truly supportive. So some of the projects we're on, for example, some of us are uh, mentors on the Waterford and City Council uh, leader regional leader initiative. And in that case we're working with individuals that are showing real promise as as leaders of the future within the region and helping them as they develop their skills in terms of their leadership skills. Uh, Some of the other initiatives are that we work relatively closely with um, many of the departments the Department of Enterprise and Skills and Enterprise Ireland so we are one of the higher, the larger providers of the innovation voucher scheme for Enterprise Ireland. So these are small and large vouchers offered by Enterprise Ireland but distributed by the higher education institutes which offer small businesses access to intellectual capital. So in this case each organisation can work closely, and we work quite, quite a bit with small and medium-sized enterprises in this regard, but they work closely with the Higher Education Institute to develop a project, an innovation project for their business. And with the help of this research team, that is affiliate to the design-based thinking, we help them to develop a plan of campaign and an implementation strategy that can ensure that that innovation is embedded in their organizational setting.
0: That's super interesting. So it doesn't really cost them anything?
1: It only costs them in the case of the innovation voucher. So it's normally a 5,000 euro voucher, which is um, converted into our time. Uh, which equates to 160 hours of our time. And we have a large team, we did 40 of us, and we have access to an even larger team in terms of our colleagues and faculty in other schools. Um, and that gives them the kind of intellectual capacity that maybe they don't have in their own business because a lot of these have only 10 to 50 employees or less than 10 if they're micro firms and really it gives them that kind of access to specialist knowledge that maybe they don't have and offers them a level playing field to work with others the cost for them is the tax affiliate to that 5,000 euro uh, um, voucher uh, which equates to I stand corrected if this isn't correct because they keep moving the the tax, but I think it's 22% at the moment.
0: The other thing, so we talked a little bit about succession and leadership, but also in some ways this enviable situation where your population is actually growing. Mm -hmm. Is that growth urban, rural, both?
1: Yeah, well, we have... uh a development plan, 2040 development plan for the whole country and that strategy is very conscious that if uh, if this growth ends up in the urban communities only, there really isn't capacity for those urban communities to soak in the services required to affiliate to those, that growing population including accommodation, education, health, infrastructure. Um, so there's quite a balanced plan there um, that has been put in place and the strategy has a number of actions on a yearly basis to fulfill the objectives of the 2040 plan, one of which is a, a rural regional development plan that's affiliated to this overriding strategy. And um, in in that context, we're looking at uh, distributing that population growth evenly through rural and urban populace. And there's a specific plan for uh, regional employment development that's been quite successful. Uh, since the implementation in 2018, there's, uh, sorry, 2017, there's 165,000 additional empl- uh, employment roles for individuals in the regions. Um, it's affiliate to a number of things, I can see you furrowing your brow there it's affiliate to the the, the positives of living in rural Ireland we have an enhanced infrastructure between the cities and rural communities and regional communities which has benefited these regional hubs because there is now genuine access from Waterford to Dublin we have a motorway uh, so if individuals are based in Waterford or Kilkenny or Carlow, their access to Dublin um, through public and uh, self-driven transport is really quite, uh, quite uh, feasible for a day route. Uh, it's under two hours to get to Dublin by car, equally so by train so you now have the capacity there for us to be truly connected while developing our own regional strategy as well other elements to that is the living standards in regional aspects of rural ireland are high capacity to own your own home is much higher than in dublin due to the differential in the cost there's access to things like schools and um uh, health But there's also an incredible uh, well-being factor. We in the southeast, for example, we're called the sunny southeast. It's all relative, Bergen. uh, I know that uh, it's not as sunny as Croatia. But from an Irish context, you have capacity to be near the ocean and the mountains within minutes of your workplace. So people are recognizing the well-being issue or our value of living in these communities as well.
0: So who are the people, where does the population growth come from? Are these Irish people who are coming back to Ireland? Are these immigrants from other parts of the world?
1: Well, it's a, it's a little of everything, actually. We have um, immigrants, um, which is unusual for Ireland. Historically, we, we bred to export, so... Um, we now have immigrants and it's been about really about 25 years now that we've had an immigration as well as an emigration and our net immigration each year is in the positive which is unusual for us up until the 70s and 80s Uh net immigration was always in the negative in the Irish context we we had greater number leaving than coming. Um, we have a number of new countries in, in Europe, we're a member of the European Union and we have welcomed our European affiliate countries. Um, many are coming to us from um, Eastern Europe and they have been coming for, for the last 20 years since the accession countries came into Europe. But many of them are staying now and establishing, and their their kids have Irish accents, and so they're well implementing uh, um, the ways and means of the culture and embeddedness. And we have um, we have asylum seekers, and they too are embedding in the communities. And we have um, our own. Uh, irish our multi-generational irish coming back but we also have a, a, a population growth through our birth rate and one of the higher birth rates in europe um so there's an affiliation there to larger families while they aren't as large as they used to be i'm one of eight children and that wasn't uncommon in when i was growing up they are still families of two and three on average and this is is producing um the population of the future for us as well. It's a very positive thing. Our age profile is interesting. We do still have a large portion of people under the age of 25, but we also have an ageing population and we're living longer. Um, So this is creating its own work opportunities and its own um, growth opportunities for rural communities in terms of elder care and youth care.
0: But that's really interesting, because I think one of the things we don't, I I don't think that here, we see that as an opportunity.
1: Oh, I think it is, isn't it? I think it is. Yeah. And I think there's an, I'm very pro, maybe because I'm less young than I used to be, but I'm I'm very pro um, intergenerational transfer of knowledge, and I really think that there's a mastery to the individuals who are 70, 80, 90 years of age. And it's a great shame if we don't capture their talents. So I think it's a real opportunity actually. And we speak of isolation, but surely we speak of youth isolation and elder isolation. But surely if we start putting these people together, it alleviates isolation for both. So I think it really is an opportunity. I can't see see it being an, an issue in the Irish context because we've growth in both. Um, I think we've to recalibrate our thinking of when an individual becomes less useful to society because I think that really should be the day they take their last breath. And we've to just change our mind about that.
0: Lovely. I am um, I'm very impressed with <laughs> very impressed. Both of my sides are very impressed, the Croatian side and the one that's been living in Newfoundland for the fi- past 11 years. Um, with the level of planning, both on a national level and on a regional level, you also talked about some challenges mm-hmm. um, that you're encountering. And one of them was the broadband. Yes. Can you tell me a bit more about that?
1: Yeah, so we have a broadband plan. Certainly, if you log on to uh, any of our our national radio system is RTE.ie. And if you log on there on any given Tuesday, uh, you'll see an article about or um, a podcast itself about the broadband in Ireland. It's as challenging as Newfoundland. OK, we're both little rocks in the Atlantic Ocean and the interferences affiliate to that means that there is an aspects of broadband that are a challenge in rural communities. They are working towards, it. they have a national broadband strategy and they're working towards the full implementation of that strategy. There have been significant um, improvements made and the level of broadband access is now far greater than it was even five years ago. Although for the 20 odd percent that are still having difficulty with broadband that is false comfort uh, some of the things that are being done in the interim is looking at smart village technology and smart town technology so it's offering digital hubs in these towns and villages and offering support for the development of these hubs at national level and regional level which is affiliated to a, offering a booster system that creates an environment where, you know, remote workers or where individuals in that community can have access to to enhanced broadband uh, access. Um, it does mean, yes, absolutely, that people have to travel from their homes. And ironically, because I'm in a tiny little three-house 200 meter black spot where I live, although I'm, I'm rural, I'm not that rural. Um, I, too, have that challenge. But I do think that it's improving and that the intent is there. And I think we, we do need to implement through intent at national level. And that's that's been strongly um, supported by multiple departments to the Department of Rural and Community Development, the Department of Communication and the Taoiseach himself, who is our equivalent of our um, president if you're in the US or the, the governor in the uh, in in the context of a provincial government. Um, that affiliation to comprehending what is required is creating a certain amount of antagonism because we want it now. We're all hedonists underneath. Um, But it also shows for a a better future and innovation takes time.
0: How is that strategy? I mean, it's a national strategy that you want to bring broadband to all the rural communities. But how is that strategy implemented on the ground? Is it a partnership with... Telecommunications industry, or who who's actually putting the wires? There.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's, that's interesting and 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 tough. Uh, so yes, it is an affiliation with industry, and um, the, there are challenges affiliate to that. So we have had recent challenges in relation to one provider saying, "No, I don't think we're going to be able for this," and uh, and the search going into. Well, who are we going to have provide this? There has been privatization of the telecommunications industry in the Irish context, um, and Telecom Aaron which became Aircom, um, was was privatized uh, twenty odd years ago. So there are some challenges there to the privatization of utilities. Okay, um, but there are a number of smaller providers in the in hub. Uh, communities, so up in Mayo and and Donegal, the smaller providers have done a great job there and and they have um, enhanced broadband in that context. And the overall strategy is looking at a joined up thinking plan and if it has to be multiple providers, that may be the route to go Um, because sometimes regional providers understand the affiliate challenges of particular locations because mountains are on one side and the sea on the other. And um, maybe they're more equipped because of their intellectual knowledge around the local landscape, and the odd geologist isn't uh, a mistake when you're looking at um, broadband in those communities like the last as well. Space food. <laughs> <laughs> so of course we're very interested, or I'm very interested, in the agricultural development. But one of the challenges we face is the mergers and amalgamation of agri farms for beef and dairy but what's coming from that is a a new push for artisan farmers and looking at it as agritourism there's quite a bit of work done in terms of agritourism where individuals who do not have capacity to earn a full living on farming alone are looking at an agritourism mix to facilitate that bedrock and to give people the continued sense of why they visit Ireland. So tourism and agriculture work quite closely together. Because a lot of people visit Ireland because they want to see sheep and cows on the side of the road, or on the road, if you're from Kerry, which please don't beep at them because they have the right of way. Uh, I kid you not, it's the law. But in context, if we're going to try and retain that kind of perspective and that kind of close to land ethos, then we do need some kind of balance between high-end, efficiency-based farming and the artisan farmer at the end of the scale. So that's some of the support structures in place. I thought you might be interested, I know that you have this… We
0: all want to go to Ireland as tourists as well, and tourism and agriculture, you mentioned, are. Key industries for rural Ireland. Yes. Uh, tell me about tourism. You mentioned uh, a phenomenal development yes. in terms of uh, trails and yeah. access to rural to rural Ireland.
1: Yeah, it's been it's I think it's been a real success story, and I think that the, the and I suspect it might be similar here. But the the challenge for Ireland is is acknowledging when we do something well. Um, It's it's not in our nature said the scorpion to the frog. So in the context of this um, there's been a a really joined up thinking in terms of destination planning uh, in fairness to the affiliate organisations Fulch Ireland and and, um, the Irish Tourism Board but also the links between tourism and agriculture has been has been a great uh, concept as well so we have a lot of agri-tourism where artisan farmers who may not have capacity to generate sufficient income to sustain their livelihood by agriculture alone will combine that with tourism and you're getting authentic experience of a farming experience in certain circumstances in others you can work with a sheepdog to herd sheep for a day. In others it's about the uh, tastes and um, uh, literally uh, field to fork as we call it. And they, in other situations again they use foraging as um, an experience for you and then they'll cook up what you foraged and there is that linkages with the land that is affiliated to an authentic experience for a tourist like yourself. But on a wider scale, what has really achieved this uplift in tourism. So we were about 7 million tourists at the start of, of this decade. And we're, we're well in excess of 11 million tourists now. And there are challenges. Over-tourism is, a, is a, um, an aware We have an awareness of over-tourism. But the distribution of these tourists around the country has been created through a very innovative way of looking at our country. So we have the Wild Atlantic Way on the West Coast, which has been a way of joining up places that people were going anyhow on a total trail. So it starts in Cork at the base of the country and it goes all along the West Coast, ending up in Donegal. Um, There is a passport affiliate to this that you can get stamped in your local post office. So you have a sense of being a true traveler. And we're selling our country in a way that's affiliate to what we have to offer. Because in a sense, up until now, we did show people the green fields, but we didn't really explain to them that green requires rain. Whereas now we're more honest in the context of the Atlantic Way and offering quite active holidays. For some of us that, that uh, wish, there's trails all the way along that coast and equally so in the ancient East. So we have an affiliate program in the eastern part of the country called the Ancient East. As I mentioned, Watford is the oldest city in the country, a, guy, a Viking settlement. And that trail is for those who are cultural historians and who, are, who wish to um, immerse themselves in the history of castles, uh, the culture of the various invasions, the Um, impact of the Norman community and one of the oldest Norman intact castles in in Europe is in Kilkenny and in Waterford we have the Viking Triangle where we've all the um, we've created an entire enclave there in relation to um, the medieval times and there's a medieval museum and all the trails there are interconnected as well And the last one that that has been affiliate to this this growth is Greenways, so the old um, derelict uh, rail lines have been rejuvenated by the various county and city councils and the various development authorities and these are now cycling and walking trails and they've really regenerated all the little towns and villages along that route and we can see for example the Watford Greenway in its first year of operation in 2018 it had 250,000 visitors which is a huge contribution to the tourist tra- uh, trade and, and the tourist sector in that community but what it's also doing is it's enhancing the health of our own citizens because it's really promoting a number of rural activities in terms of mental and physical health so we have walk to run initiatives, we've uh, moonlight walks on these trails. Uh, We've 5K uh, runs. Um, We have triathlons, which I won't be doing. I say we, but I do join in and go to the coffee shops in the various uh, locations. So it's there's something for everyone in these locations as well.
0: Now, that sounds amazing. I have to ask, because all of us are waiting with a breath for October 31st, uh, Brexit.
1: Yeah, it's a tough one, and I mentioned it yesterday that I know people are looking at it as an economic issue, but we look at it as both a social and economic issue. Um, and we're very conscious in particular for the rural communities on both sides of the border. So, to explain Brexit from an Irish lens, um, Ireland as an island has two parts. Um, the Republic of Ireland is its own entity. Um, it's been a republic uh, since uh, just over 100 years as the War of Independence um, in 2016 we celebrated the 100-year centenary. And um, we've been a republic really since 1932 in its, its full capacity. The top uh, right-hand corner, the top six counties are Northern Ireland and they're part of the United Kingdom. So Brexit has a huge impact not just on Northern Ireland but on the affiliate border counties in Southern Ireland. And the difficulty we face is that the peace process in Northern Ireland has been an ongoing process of social and economic change, all positive, for both Northern Ireland and the border counties in Southern Ireland and our, um, our hope is that we can ensure the backstop such that there is no hard border between our two communities who are interlinked in every way um, because that border runs through mountain ranges, it runs through farms, so it's going to be very difficult to say who's a European cow and who's a UK cow, if we don't put a fence between them in the same farm. But it also runs through physical houses. So it's a very difficult scenario to say we can put a border here. Um, And we've had a border before, it wasn't ideal. And um, our preference, our strong preference in in the Republic is that the, that there's a, a soft border, no border at all, ideally, and that the communities continue to grow and prosper together in affiliation with each other. Um, so a lot of the work in, in terms of the departments in, in Ireland, and particularly the Department of Urban Community Development, and their affiliate department in the North are very focused on that.
0: Um. Yeah, it doesn't make much sense if your living room is in European Union
1: and your kitchen is It Doesn't <laughs> make much sense for agriculture in particular, yeah. and agriculture is big for both both uh, for both areas for both Northern and Ireland and the South.
0: Anything I should have asked and I haven't?
1: No, if, uh, except to say that I've I've been in Newfoundland now um, for five weeks. Um, I'm encouraging people to consider the Dobbin Atlantic Scholarship, it is partially sponsored by one of your own in terms of Mark Dobbin and um, the affiliate benefit of me being here for me is huge and hopefully I've been able to give something back um, but I would strongly encourage people to speak to each other because there are things that that we're doing that maybe. You're, you haven't seen before but equally so there are things you're doing that I hadn't seen before that I'm able to bring back and share so there's always benefit in knowledge transfer so I'd encourage people at all levels um, whether it's the scholarship or through the affiliation between WIT and uh, Memorial University Newfoundland and we have a strong affiliation over a number of decades um, to make sure and, and come visit and we' we'll, we'll uh, encourage the same on our site.
0: Thank you so much thank you. You just listened to another episode of Rural Roots. My guest today was Felicity Kelleher from the Waterford Institute of Technology in Ireland. We talked about rural innovation and rural development in Ireland and lessons that might be useful to Newfoundland and Labrador and potentially Canada. I am Boyen First, and I produce Rural Roots at the Harris Centre at Memorial University of Newfoundland in partnership with Rural Policy Learning Commons and Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation. You can find us online at www.ruralrootspodcasts.com, that's Rural, R-O-U-T-E-S, podcasts.com, and you can also find us whenever you listen to podcasts and on National Campus and Community Radio Station Network. Today, I would like to ask for your help. We've never done that before, but today we need to. Rural Roots has been on air and on your mobile devices now for three seasons. We covered a broad range of issues and we heard all sorts of stories from Italy, Ireland, Scotland, all over Canada and the United States. We are conducting an evaluation of the show. In the show notes on your phone or on the website, there is a link to a survey that you can participate in. It would mean a lot if you would. Your input will help us determine the future of this show. So please, please, please fill out the survey. I'm Boyan First and you just listened to Rural Roots. Thank you and